0: My conversation today is with Charles Scott. Charles is an executive mentor who helps people achieve ambitious goals and live meaningful lives. He left a 14-year career at Intel to become an adventurer, author, and co-founder of the nonprofit Team C Possibilities. He leads a popular executive workshop called What Do You Want to Be When You Grow Up? and has spoken at numerous companies, including Uber and Harvard Business School. He has also been featured in major publications and GIMS talks on raising resilient children, He also uses anecdotes from his own endurance challenges and experiences to help people achieve their goals while prioritizing their personal health. So Charles, my mom heard you speak one time and immediately saw a connection between what you were doing um, and what you were talking about, as well as what I wrote about in my book and just what I'm interested in in general. So she immediately was like, you need to talk to this guy if you get a chance. And luckily you were in Milwaukee for a night before you flew out. And it just so happened that very, very last minute we were able to meet up and our conversation ended up lasting quite a while. I think that just speaks mm-hmm. to the value of it. And you know, you taught me about a lot of things, but what really stood out was not in what you said, but it was in how you operate yourself as an individual. It was the questions you asked me and also what I could see from the way that you run your business. So I know you're in Chile right now. So thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today.
1: Thank you for inviting me. And I love that your mother connected us to, and I also read your book and was just so impressed by the vision you had for the book, which was to, you know, find interesting people, interview them, look for common themes and apply them to your life and then offer them to others as well. So I'll give you respect right back. It was really, I very much enjoyed the conversation with you. I'm happy to talk to you today.
0: Definitely. Thank you. And if I'd known you before writing my book, I definitely would have been reaching out to you. So I appreciate that. So in your bio, I actually shared a little bit about how you went from working at Intel to what you're doing now. And I think it's easy to hear something like that as as a listener and maybe assume that it was completely off the cuff, kind of a quick decision, midlife crisis. But I know that it's more than that. So could you just share a little bit about the transition story from your perspective of going from Intel to what you do now?
1: Yeah. It was definitely not a flippant decision uh, and it was not an easy one either. I worked there for 14 years and I loved it. It was really a great place for me to work. I grew up there professionally. I was formed by Intel's culture, which is really powerful, includes informed risk-taking, constructive confrontation, a bunch of concepts that I found really helpful. But basically I just outgrew it. I changed and we all change as time passes. And um, when I turned 40 years old, I wrote out a list of life goals and one of them was dream up adventures with my kids. So I took a two month unpaved leave of absence and I cycled the length of Japan with my eight year old son, which was a really life-changing experience for me. I was just excited by the idea uh, and I pulled it off and then I came back and went right back to work, but something inside me had changed. And I realized I really wanna do adventures and be a kind of role model for my children in this phase of life where the biggest gift I can give them is my time and attention. And so I left the corporate world, but it took me two years to to actually do it. I knew I wanted to leave, but I I couldn't pull the trigger. And it seemed like a stupid midlife crisis. <laughs> and I kept thinking like, no, don't do it. And I talked to different people about it. So I had long conversations about what is this nudge I feel to leave. And I even did a deathbed conversation. I imagined myself on my deathbed. And I asked that version of myself, well, what should I do? And, and he didn't care. He's like, I'm dying dude, like why, why would I care? <laughs> but but actually, but I was like, come on, give me some advice. And his main advice, my deathbed self was follow whatever path gives you the greatest amount of vitality. And this is the same message that I offer to everyone I work with. What path offers the greatest amount of vitality for you? And then if, if it's clear, go. And there are gonna be risks, there's gonna be pain, there's gonna be struggles, there'll be an abyss, but it's just part of your path. And if it generates vitality, you'll figure it out. It makes it really interesting. In fact, struggle makes the story that much more interesting to tell. What you want to avoid and what I was trying to avoid was stagnation. I just didn't want to kind of fade into old age or or follow a conventional path that didn't feel true to me anymore. So being authentic to myself was seeking whatever gave me vitality. And in this case, it was dreaming up crazy adventures with my kids. And I ended up cycling over 7,000 miles with them around the world and writing two books about it. And that From that experience, organically, what I've become professionally kind of emerged out of that.
0: Yeah. And you bring up a really great point that it changes over time, right? So it's not like what you're doing right now was supposed to be what you were doing when you were 20, even though sometimes I think a lot of times people look back on their life and say, Oh, I wish I would have just started doing it sooner. But you're kind of different people in different parts of your life. And that's also the beauty of sometimes having, whether you want to call it a midlife crisis or just, natural way that we're supposed to evolve and so i think it's really great that you bring that up and and how that is supposed to change because it's so easy to get caught up in what we what we chose for ourselves when we picked a major or what we chose in our first job that that's just supposed to be who we are for the rest of our life so that alignment and authenticity piece and one thing that i learned from you is that even though i felt like i was very authentic i literally wrote a whole section about the pieces that i learned about authenticity in my book What I learned is that you can also always be more authentic. And I learned those through the questions that you were asking me because I was talking to you about this podcast and how people say it's best to niche and there's advice out there to do this, there's advice out there to do that. And you challenged me by helping me really realize you can do whatever you want and whenever you want with some, of course, some stipulations. But if it doesn't work out the way that you had planned, and you're not enjoying it or whatever it is that you can change and you can do something else when that time comes and authenticity goes deeper than we might think so even when we're thinking we're being authentic there's always that second question that you can ask yourself to really get a little bit deeper so before this conversation i looked up the definition of authenticity just on google and i'm sure maybe you've done this before too but what i found is the definition of authenticity that google gives is the quality of being authentic so then i was like okay Kind of circular. I looked nice. up the, the yeah. I looked up the definition of authentic, and it said of undisputed origin or genuine. So then I looked up genuine. Still kind of circular. Get, getting to the point a little bit. And then the definition of genuine was truly what something is said to be authentic, like with a semicolon. I was like, okay, these are very like very cryptic for no reason. <laughs> I didn't understand why. It couldn't just give me a direct answer. So to make sure that we're on the same page when we're talking about authenticity and alignment as well. Could you just share your definition of authenticity? Normally I don't do this, but when Google gives sure, me a very sure. circular answer, I want to make sure that we're on the same page and preferably without using the words authentic or genuine.
1: Sure. Well, what I would say is living authentically is bringing your unique self to the world and offering it to the world. Your unique self, is the. it would be the term when we're talking about an individual. This is actually a lot of hard work. Authentic is a fluffy term that's overused and often it seems circular like you just described. But when I'm working with people, uh, where I see people suffer is where their professional facade is not in alignment with their authentic self. So here's your professional facade, here's your authentic self, two different hands. Um, and w- w- this is where you suffer because you're you're not in alignment, you're pretending to be something you're not. This is where imposter syndrome resides. This is where stagnation resides. This is where a lot of people I work with in corporate America are really suffering. They put on a brave face, they, their facade looks amazing, but inside they're really struggling. And it's because they're misaligned. So so then the key is, so what is your authentic self? And it's not like you can write it in one sentence. This is a lot of work. And I encourage people to take lots of self-assessments and to go through pain in life, just live and what will happen is you will start to figure yourself out experientially over time and intellectually you can figure yourself yourself out through all kinds of self assessments myers briggs is great my favorite is sparkotype this is based on the book sparked by jonathan fields and um he was trying to see if we could come up with some labels that would be useful in helping people to understand what drives them what is their unique gift they want to bring to the world and the more you understand this part of yourself, the more work you do here, the greater your possibility to align it with your authentic self. And then you bring that to the role that you're playing. We're all actors on stage. We all have professional facades. It's okay. But but if you can bring it to alignment, then you do it your way. And this is your point about the my advice to you about your podcast. Yes, there's a wrong way to do podcasts, right? If this was an eight hour interview, you would nobody's gonna listen to the whole darn thing. So sure, there's a there's a craft around this, but then beyond the craft, who are you? And what do you care about? And what is your personality? And you will attract other people. The more authentic you are, you'll attract people that way. The one other book, I think we talked about this when you and I um, met in person, is The Principle of 18. So going back to your earlier point about we're allowed to change, The Principle of 18 is the title of a book by Eyal Danarn. Um, He's an Israeli life coach. And he breaks down life into five 18-year buckets with different priorities. And the first one, birth through 18, is dreamer. And the second one, 18 to 36, is explorer. And many people in this second bucket, in the explorer phase, think they need to know exactly what their professional identity is, start making a ton of money and preparing for retirement or I don't know what it is, or, or impress everybody, when really it's the explorer stage. Go out there and mess everything up. Like just follow your dreams and then and then, you know, do a face plant and 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 realize, oh, that didn't work. Or be amazing at it. And then it did work, great, but just pursue, be an explorer for a while. And that's when I'm working with people in their 20s and 30s, I encourage them to elongate the exploration phase of their life and not get trapped by the belief that they need to lock in a single professional identity uh, and then and push it. That's often when they're misaligned.
0: So do you ever suggest people to not only elongate it, but kind of re-go through those phases?
1: I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, if you read his book, all five of the phases that he lists out, they're always relevant. It's just one is more of a priority depending on phase of life that you're in. So an 80-year-old can be a dreamer. You don't only have to be birth through 18 to be a dreamer, of course. Yeah. So the key is, how do you bring it to life in a way that's appropriate to your phase of development? If you're 45 years old, married, and have children, and your dream is to sail the world, well, that's a lovely dream, but please take into account that your children do need your attention and your support. So maybe you bring them with you. That's what I did. <laughs> I, I, I just brought my kids with me and wrote books about that experience. It was awesome. It changed it. But but so decide, You know, basically meet your commitments and understand what phase of life you're in, what matters to you. And then you can uh, apply all of these sources of vitality uh, to you.
0: That is really great. And I haven't read that book yet, but I definitely will have to. One other thing that you brought up in the conversation before you brought up that book was this concept of having the personal facade versus our true selves and I think sometimes people don't really know where that line of there is professionalism when you're working in a certain corporate world and there is being your personal self. So even when you're bringing your personal true authentic self to work there's still lines that you know you're not going to show up to work in sweatpants. You're going to have a different style of language when you're talking to customers and then your friends versus your parents or whoever you're talking to. How do you know where that line is, whether you're aligned with that?
1: Yeah. Um, the way I think is helpful to think about it is to imagine yourself as an actor on stage. So your professional facade is the role you're playing on stage. So you're in a play and you're an actor playing a specific role. The audience knows you're an actor, right? But if you're good as an actor, the audience will will be transported along with you into the role you're playing and they will enjoy the journey with you because you're really good. And so some people will talk about certain actors play certain roles really, really well. And so you want to see this Broadway musical, but only see it when so-and-so is playing this character because they're so amazing at it, right? We all know they have a life. We all know they're an actor, but in this play, they're incredible in this role. So own the fact that you're an actor on stage. There's a bright spotlight on you. People are paying attention to what you do. So you right now are playing the role of a podcast interviewer. You have done your homework, right? You introduced this and you've created a set of expectations for the listeners. And you're asking questions that aren't too long, but they're on on target, et cetera, et cetera. So you're playing a role and it's fine. And some people play the role really well and some people don't. So focus on the craft of the role. But then also bring you, your real self, your authentic self to the role. And when you marry those two things well, you're incredible. And people are like, she's just awesome as a podcast interviewer. They're awesome in that Broadway musical. Uh, And that's the way to think of it. So these two can come together. But it's okay to be an actor on stage. Don't feel badly about that. We all do that when we have a professional role to play.
0: What are your thoughts on the quote, fake it until you make it?
1: Um, Yeah, I, I think it's probably... It's true in some sense. I haven't really thought about this, I'm, I'm going to do this off the cuff. Um, what that is highlighting is that the facade matters. So let's say, let's let's stick with the example I gave. Let's say you're an actor on stage and you are reciting the lines and then you blow one. You forget the line, right? Now let's imagine you that you go, damn it, right? So you let the audience know you just missed, up, missed the line, right? You have just destroyed the verisimilitude of that, <laughs> of the scene. The other actor is like, ah, you've rattled everyone. So what does a good actor do? They will just continue on even though they missed the line. And, and the other actor will know you missed the line and may ad lib in order to help you get back to that line. And the audience, unless they've memorized the script, will have no idea that you just did that. So that would be an example perhaps of fake it till you make it. You can make a mistake, but it's how you respond to the mistake that I think is most important. And a corollary concept is you're allowed to be angry sometimes. Don't be afraid of strong emotions like anger. Anger is a natural human emotion and it's not that that emotion is bad, it's how we often respond to having that emotion that can lead to consequences that we don't like. So think about your response to a situation where you may have messed up or you may not know what's going on. And that's where fake it, if you make it, might serve you. My preferred approach is to just own when you don't know something. So just own it and then work on it. But if you're in a situation like an actor on stage live, you wanna fake that it was and and keep it going. So if you're in front of a customer, you're giving a keynote speech, just keep going. People forgive you for your mistakes, right? So I don't know, that's kind of my nuanced response, but I hadn't really thought a lot about that. So if I thought more, maybe I could come up with something more articulated. That'd be my opinion.
0: No, that's good. I mean, I first of all love the analogy because I think really well in analogies. And I, I think that's a very good, good explanation because I've heard I've heard conflicting opinions on when people say fake it till you make it. And I also think that's a matter of perspective on there's a lot of different situations in which you might say that where you might really agree with that statement or feel the same way about. Like with the analogy that you brought. So I think that's a really great, really great point. I wanted to come back to authenticity and specifically authenticity and how it's changed. Because I feel like consciously being authentic, you know, asking yourself the questions to figure out whether you're aligned, whether you are having what you really want, just thinking about it and asking those questions is sometimes easier than being authentic subconsciously in the environment that we have. So like we're constantly mm-hmm. being influenced by the environment that we're in, whether we want to or not. But now, specifically, we live in a time where we're constantly getting information, whether it's good information, bad information, neutral information, whether it's educational, maybe information about what we should be doing or shouldn't be doing, like any of the advice, and also information about what other people are doing, right? So it's a constant feed of information. So one thing that's changed a lot, though, is is the internet, the information age and social media, especially, right? People talk about how it's rapidly growing and it's really changing the nature of a lot of things. But what I'm curious for you is how have you seen the internet, the information age, social media, all of the technology and changes that have happened uh, really have an impact on our ability to remain authentic?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and I think a a real challenge for our time. Social media has the power to be liberating. It allows you to be a part of a number of groups of identity groups that can serve you, but it also can trap you. And I think the biggest trap in social media is it allows a vocal fringe uh, to, to be perceived as if they represent the majority. You, you have a lot of people, I think it's a small percentage of, of people online who are radical on one side or another, and they will perpetuate a certain narrative uh, that's, that's negative uh, and not healthy, uh, and then it'll get amplified and repeated over and over again. And So if you are kind of in the middle on this or just not radical, and they're just a loving person who wants to connect with others, you may think that that's the majority view. And that's dangerous because then you silence yourself and allow the the radical fringe view that is really destructive to be perceived and take over as the majority view. So my advice uh, and the way I try to live my life is just ask why. If there's something that seems really agitating that makes me upset or fearful, dig in to why is it that I'm being agitated by this thing Like, and is it really true? there's a lot of BS out there of course. So that's that's one way to think about it. The other is is what I said at the beginning, the identity groups, try to be a part of as many or of many identity groups based on your hobbies and your interests and surround yourself with a diverse set of opinions and that can help inoculate you from the echo chamber of just one identity group us versus them, right? And so I think that's a really important way to try to deal with social media. I limit, I don't spend a lot of time on it at all, just personally, but but except to just check in with some old friends for perhaps. But it's, it, it's easy to get sucked into uh, that particular medium in a way that I don't think is particularly healthy.
0: Yeah. Well, and now too, with the algorithms just getting stronger and stronger and the money that's made from people, from exactly what you just said, even though we know that we don't want to get sucked into that, but what's going on behind the scenes and, and even subconsciously, too, is really powerful. And like you said, it's, it's a scary thing to be in an echo chamber and uh, at least to consciously try to figure out ways to get out of that. Have you, so I I know I sent you an email about it before, have you read the book Wanting by Luke Burgess? I have not. Okay. Are you familiar with memetic theory? Yes. Okay. But, so a,
1: but, but but give me the framework and way you're
0: framing it. Please. Okay. So yeah, I, I'll be interested to see kind of like what your thoughts are on memetic theory and what you know. Um, versus what was in the book, because this was my first introduction to the concept of memetic theory. It's called wanting the power of Mimetic desire in everyday life, and essentially the theory is that it was discovered by Rene Girard, and the theory itself is that a majority of what humans desire tends to be memetic, meaning imitative, meaning we don't just it doesn't just come from us individually. We we tend to learn what we want and desire based on the models in our world, whether they're in our circle which in the book, he kind of labels the two different models in our circle versus out of our circle is freshmanistan and then celebristan. And he talks about the different ways that those kind of play a role because they are different. So we, we learn to desire based on what our models want. So we follow trends because we see that it's something desirable to other people. And we maybe something that I've found is that a lot of times we'll still justify with very objective reasons why we chose to do something or why we chose to buy something. I think like right now, for example, are you familiar with like Stanley Cup's?
1: No, you mean, I only know I only know the hockey, the sense of hockey.
0: Oh, I didn't even think about that. Oh my goodness. We're, yeah, yeah we're different generations, I think.
1: Yes, we are. <laughs> Sorry.
0: No, that's okay. So Stanley Cup is like a very prime example of a trend that is happening right now. It's a water bottle. I feel like water bottles and fashion are things that are very prone to trends. I don't know what it is. And I don't know if, if you've seen it too, but it, like Hydro Flask. with I have this, the Awala water bottle. And this is becoming like popular now. It's really strange. But I think what's interesting, too, is I'll have friends. I have friends who have the Stanley Cups, not the hockey. <laughs> That's yeah, so is. funny. Um, I'll have friends that, or I'll see on, on social media or whatever it is. People explaining why the Stanley Cup is so great. They say it fits in a cup holder. They'll say it holds a lot of fluid. It keeps your drink really cold. It has a straw. I think there's a lot of drinks that have that general framework and those those aspects to it so it's kind of funny that we justify it with those things and very objective statements to make us feel like it was completely our decision to do that i'm definitely subject to trends just as much as anybody else is another example would be and i know you said you're familiar with memetic theory but just to kind of like jog our memories about it Mm -hmm. right um so like kids playing with toys i don't know if you're around kids a lot i know you have children of your own Um, Mm -hmm. but thinking of very little kids, like they might be in a room and there's hundreds of toys in a room and nobody's playing with the little Mr. Potato head in the corner, but then once little Tommy or whoever it is starts playing with that, it seems really interested in it. Then the other kids want it. Then it starts a fight. And I know I see this a lot with my nieces and nephews. I have three nieces and two nephews and it seems so silly, but it's how we're wired. And the funny thing is I was thinking about this example. It's funny because as an adult, I see this. And in the moment, I'll be with my siblings or whatever it is. And it's like, it seems so silly. There's stories everywhere. There's all these things. You didn't even want the Mr. Potato Head until Rami started playing with it. And I I sit back and I think like, oh, that's funny. Like, oh, that's just something that kids do. Until I realize it's the same exact mechanism that we adults tend to have. And maybe it's not as overt with the screaming and crying that's happening. Like, you might not scream and cry about something that with that same situation, but I think in some cases, it could even be more destructive if it comes in a silent form of negative emotion, whether it's envy or anxiety or other negative emotions that we have over things that we don't even really want. So I think memetic theory, it's one of those things that makes a lot of sense when you hear it explained in the way that it is explained. I think like any you know bias or things that we're, we're seeing in our everyday life, but once it's explained to us, it's like, whoa. And it's something that I never really accounted for the impact that it actually has subconsciously and specifically in authenticity, which is why I wanted to bring this up is because I think it really really is intertwined. So first of all, I'd love to hear your thoughts on memetic theory and then also more about how you think it could play a role in authenticity.
1: Yeah, um, you you said something that I think is key, which was uh, we're hardwired, you said. I think it's grounded in evolutionary biology historically, if you were ostracized from a group, you were gonna die. If it's a small group of humans living in the wild and you're gonna go live on your own, you're probably gonna die. So the the desire to be accepted in a group is hardwired in all of us. And it's, it's important. It's actually a survival skill. And it can be translated. And I think in this theory, what you're seeing is the examples, the manifestations of it where you're you're influenced by the group and then you want what the group wants, that's another form of conformity. And conformity is the key to survival. The way to mess with this is to go live in a foreign country. I lived in a Buddhist seminary in Tokyo for two years between college and grad school. And that was pretty much the exact opposite of the way I was raised and the lifestyle I had in college and all that. And it was just interesting to feel so distant from the group. But I was welcomed and I was treated respectfully. But I was always an outsider. So the feeling I had as an as a white man living in Japan was, and as American living in Japan, was outsider who was treated like an honored guest. But you're still an outsider, and I, you, I noticed that I felt it myself and others a desire sometimes to take on the tendencies or interests of the Japanese people I was around. Why, in order to be more accepted. Uh, and so that was interesting. so I lived it and felt it. and so that's that's um, if you stay in one place and grow up, it'll be harder to see it. So extract yourself from your parochial environment and go live somewhere radically different and it'll bring this out and start relief. And then you got to decide who you are. The other thing, and this was something in Japan, there's a term called the nail that sticks up will be hammered down. So that's a co- more of a collectivist society that puts the greater emphasis on collective needs over your individual needs. You and I, were raised in a society that uh, celebrates individualism. And so when we talk about authenticity, we keep talking about you as an individual. And I said, bring your unique self to this world, right? But uh, someone raised in a different culture might speak very differently about authenticity and authenticity might be alignment with what best serves the group and not doing selfish things that you might want to do, but that harm the group. Maybe that would be their definition of authenticity. So I think this theory is really about um, you being accepted in and, and making choices that allow you to to reinforce I'm definitely a part of this group and where it's unconscious in in many ways.
0: Yeah, I, I first of all I love that tip that you kind of subtly gave in there to to go to another country and, and whether you can or cannot do that, there's always different ways of going to other groups that aren't like yourself.
1: I like your point. If you can't go to a foreign culture, you can you can join a different group uh, with some, a very diverse set of perspectives and you'll have a similar experience.
0: I think what I like that you bring up and kind of go into more depth in depth is that a lot of times it's so easy to think, oh mimetic desire, I wish I wish we didn't have that. I wish we didn't have this bias or that bias. but I haven't come across a certain bias that although maybe at the face of it is very, you know why do we have that? there doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, but you mentioned conformity and whether that's through memetic desire or the conformity bias, there's always a root in why we have that. And it's really mm. easy to think, oh, I wish I wish I wasn't influenced by other people. Going back to the mimetic desire and, and yep. obviously it, it's, it's good to just be aware of those things that we naturally have. Um, but for me, what I was thinking is that it's one thing when it comes to material per- possessions, whether you're talking about a Stanley Cup or fashion or mm-hmm. uh, things like that. But I think it's a whole different, not necessarily problem, but thing to consider when we talk about society's influence on how we choose to spend our time. So whether it's the vacations that we have, the events that we go to, or I think one of the more important things that you really talk about and help people with is our careers because it's where we spend a lot of our time. It's where we're giving a lot of our attention to. And I know there are a lot of people out there right now who don't love their job, right? Maybe maybe they don't hate it enough to fit. I think there's a lot of people who are in that kind of middle phase where they don't hate it, but they're feeling disengaged or just don't look forward to going to work it's a big percentage of people. And I, I think that being said, I think we need to be careful about what we suggest, especially people who may be willing to just completely quit their job. When, like you said, so don't want to inspire any whimsical decisions, but what would you suggest to people who are in this situation? Maybe they have a family and to support, but they still feel very stuck and not really in a place that's aligned with what they really want.
1: Yeah, and I want to preface that by saying, just kind of commenting on one of your earlier statements um, that like you don't want to have these memetic desires or or anything else. I use a filtering question. So if there's some behavior pattern of yours, analyze the degree to which it serves you or doesn't. And so the question is, if you conform to the norms, if you follow a fad that's happening right now, just ask: Does this serve me? Does this harm me? Does this, cert, does this help me be the person I wanna be in this world or does it not? And if the answer is no, then I, I would question it. But conformity in and of itself is not a negative in my opinion. In fact, it's, it's necessary for large groups of humans to function together. It's the secret in fact. So it's okay until it isn't. And you gotta tell me the, the line where until it isn't. You notice when I said I left my 14 year career at Intel, it took me two years of processing, of feeling the nudge, of resisting it because I thought it was stupid for me to leave. And then finally taking action with a lot of reflection and plans in place. So when I'm working with people who are dissatisfied in their career, um, the first suggestion is to do the hard work of figuring out your sources of vitality, right? And that's why I said, take lots of self-assessments. I mentioned Enneagram and Sparketype. Uh, also, the the technique I use is I say write out a list of things that both excite and intimidate you. That's another way to just kind of reveal where your sources of vitality. And as you get that data, look at your current situation and don't make any radical changes. Stay in the same job, stay in the same relationship, stay in the same house, <laughs> but look for ways to bring your vitality to life in your current situation. Then that can involve delegating tasks that you don't like to do, that can involve boundary setting against uh, things that that are where people are trying to ask you to do things that are inappropriate that you don't want to, and it involves investing in the stuff that gives you vitality. So, can you take your current job and can you turn up the dial on the stuff that gives you vitality and turn down the dial on the stuff that doesn't? An example of this would be a person I worked with who really loved mentoring others but their their job and job title did not involve any mentoring. But in the company, there were people who needed help. And so what he did is he would go to those people and offer, if you want some advice, I'm happy to give it. And, and they'd meet like once a month for lunch or something. And he played the role of mentor. Another person I worked with, same situation, created an entire mentoring program, like institutionalized it. And so what they're doing is they have a day job but then they add on to it this thing that gives them value and meaning and all of a sudden they're feeling a little better about what they're doing at work so i always advise people to start incrementally there can you adjust your current situation with self-knowledge of what gives you vitality and start to make subtle changes or not so subtle changes in your situation if that doesn't work if you're still agitated then what you do is you look outside of work what hobbies and relationships and activities and groups can you be involved in that give you a lot of joy that can counteract some of the, the the mundane crap you have to deal with just to pay the bills? So you can do those two things. If you've done those two things and you're still really dissatisfied, I'm happy to talk with you about my own major transition. Uh, and if, if you want to leave and go do something else, go for it. It's just risky and hard. So you got to kind of really, really want it. And if you really, really want it, I can help you. But I... I push people to try to not make any changes first and work more internally uh, with some incremental changes, that usually fixes it for most people actually, because the big change is so disruptive. And if you move way too quickly on it, just because you're sick of working for the man, and I'm just going go to go do what I feel like, you'll put yourself in a major crisis that won't serve you as well. So be systematic about it.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think too, people probably put on some rose tinted glasses when they're thinking about what that situation would look like if they're free. And especially when you see people now, whether it's an influencer or anyone going out to do something like you did, we just see how things turned out well for you, right? And right. I'm sure you talk and you're very honest about the, the true and real process, but we have this automatic assumption that when we make a certain decision in the future, it's going to turn out exactly like it is in our head. So I really am glad that you bring up the the fact that it is diff- difficult and hard and definitely considering some of the other options first. And another thing that I really like that you bring up too, because I'm a I'm a big fan of, of passion projects. And the way that I always saw passion projects really before this conversation, honestly, was something that you do on the outside of your work, something that helps you kind of get aligned with what you enjoy doing and can produce for the world or other people. Yeah. But what I like about what you just said was that you can kind of incorporate those aspects of a passion project with your job and, and whether you talk with your boss about how you could maybe go about doing that. I know my company has like this women's organization that you can be on a committee for. I think a lot of companies have some really great opportunities out there, whether it's something that you create or something that you just join. And I love the thought of not necessarily needing an, an external passion project, but figuring out how you can bring some more some more of that passion into your work, which also I was going to ask you for busy parents, because like I said, I'm into passion projects, but I have a lot more time and a lot less. I don't really have anybody depending on me. So it's easy for me to say, oh, well, maybe you could consider writing a book or maybe you could consider right. doing this or whatever it is, because it does take up time. And and for a lot of us, I you know you don't really have as much of that. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk more about, too, was C Possibilities, which is in a way kind of like more fashion project as well. Mm hmm. Could you share, I know we don't have too much time left, but kind of just tell me more about that.
1: And, no, and I love talking about C possibilities. Th- this happened because a friend of mine named Dan Berlin went blind uh, in his thirties. And, and he went through kind of depression for a while because you was know, grieving, basically the loss of his sight. But then he decided to become a marathoner and he asked me to guide him in the New York City Marathon. And that began a whole series of endurance challenges that led to Team C Possibilities, which is this nonprofit where uh, we take on endurance challenges and write articles about them, we'll make videos, Uh, we'll meet with students or adults, some of who are disabled, some are, and Dan will tell his story about losing his eyesight, the grieving that came from that, and then his decision to become an endurance athlete. Then we raise money and we give it away in scholarship form to college students with vision impairment and Dan mentors them every month. Uh, And he brings in different speakers and different blind um, professionals. And his main challenge is, what are you gonna do with your life? I'm CEO of a company. I've run across the Grand Canyon to back. I've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He has all this crazy stuff he's done. And I've been his guide in all those (laughs) adventures. But he challenges them with the gift of high expectations. And many people with disabilities in this culture are given the message that you need to be taken care of. And of course, if you have a disability, you, that needs to be taken into account uh, in all your decisions. And it's an impediment in certain ways. But what are you going to do with your life? And let's go you know, make a big impact on this world. So that's what Team C Possibility is all about. We just come up with crazy endurance challenges that we want to do anyway, and then build this uh, wonderful charitable project around it. And I I just love talking about Dan. I talk about him in in executive trainings that I do and use uh, his example of, of how to perform, how to develop high-performing teams and mindset shifts, focusing on your ability instead of your disability. Uh, there's even a movie that's coming out. that's about the first ever team of blind cyclists to do race across America. And I was his guide on the tandem bike in this 3,000 mile bike race. It was crazy. It's basically our way of being full of vitality and sharing it with others and encouraging others to challenge themselves to grow.
0: I love that. Where can people see the movie or any information about the Team C Possibilities?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there are two different websites. So one website is teamcpossibilities.com. And that is that will uh, describe the different adventures that we've done and the Team C Possibilities scholars, these college students with vision impairment. And then there's a second website, which is um, uh, TeamC2C.com. Uh, the first C is spelled S-E-A, and then it's T-O, and then S-E-E, uh, which was our team name for Race Across America. Um, so Team C2C, we started the Pacific Ocean, and we rode to site, is the wordplay. Um, and that they'll see a trailer for the movie called Surpassing Site. And that's and, and you'll be able to see the trailer and then it will be released later uh, probably later this year
0: wonderful no i i'm super excited to check that out when it comes out are there any other resources or books that you'd want to recommend that whether it's with team C possibilities the the passion projects or just you know a- alignment and authenticity yeah
1: so i've mentioned two so i mentioned the principle of 18 by al danan and then sparked by jonathan fields And I'll add a third that's just for fun. This is a fun book, but I really loved it. It's The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life by Boyd Vardy. The one liner out of it that I love is he says, "Um, I don't know where I'm going, but I know exactly how to get there. But I thought that's a great summary of, of a way to go through this world. The trap, particularly for young people, but it happens at all phases of life, is to expect that you're supposed to know. You're supposed to have it all figured out and you're supposed to consistently follow that trajectory. And the truth is you, it unfolds and you have experiences and you change and it's messy. And it's really only in retrospect, looking back, that you can draw those lines so clearly. And so I don't know where I'm going, but I know exactly how to get there. It means you trust the process of working towards authenticity, of generating vitality, of collecting um, you know, experiences and finding groups of people and doing the hard work to learn and grow and then offering that to others. And it will unfold from there.
0: Yeah, I've never read that book, so I'll definitely have to check it out. I love that quote. Great, and I know, I know you're hard to find online. But where can people find you if you want to be found?
1: Sure. No, I have a website. Um, I uh, the website is executivementorcharlesscott.com. Um, and so executive mentors, it's all one word, mentors M-E-N-T-O-R. So that's my professional title and the role I play And, and if you go there, you'll see a description of the, my business model and, and basically what I offer people. Offer people, And they can, if they want to send me a message, there's an email there that they can send. So I'm not trying to be hard to find. I just don't, I, the, my business model is based on word of mouth. So I'm old school that way. And I'm not using social media. I'm not randomly you know, putting stuff out in the world so much. And so that might make it a little bit harder but I'm happy to be found by anyone who thinks that my, the way I'm going through this world resonates with them and they think I can be a helpful resource for them, of course, feel free to reach out. Definitely.
0: Well, it is hard to find people when they're not trying to be found because I feel like every, when everybody's trying to be found, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like a, a sea of the internet that's, it's hard. Sure. And before I let you off, I do end with a challenge. So I'm gonna give you the opportunity to give a challenge to anybody listening. The only, I guess, requirement is that it has to be a habit or specific action that somebody can physically do today or tomorrow that helps them get closer to being aligned with, with themselves and authentic in this moment in where they are right now.
1: I love the question. Uh, so all right, here's my challenge. So tomorrow, can you spend tomorrow, your finite time and energy, 90 plus percent of it on things you love to do, you're good at, and you find meaningful? Can you structure your day so that 90% of your finite time and energy is spent on things you love to do, you're good at, and you find meaningful? If you think this is a ridiculous challenge, there's no way you can do that, then you're right. But if you think it's possible, you're also right. So my challenge to you is to believe that it's possible, it is, this is the way I live my life, and then see is there any way to structure your day so that it's just an increasing percentage of the time. I gave this challenge one time to someone. He said, I, got maybe, I can do maybe 10%. And I said, can you get it to 20? He said, maybe. I said, great, try that. Get it from 10 to 20. But my challenge is to make it the vast majority of your finite time and energy is spent that way. And the more of us who do that, the more you have a gift you give to everyone around you is permission to try to do the same. And then collectively, we can generate an insane amount of vitality.
0: I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you for inviting me. No, I really appreciate it. And, and I love what you're doing too, the, the impact you're having on the world. Keep doing it. It's fun uh, to, to just explore these ideas and offer them to people too. So thanks.